Welcome to the Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On the Purposeful Project podcast, we share real life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music or anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can simply visit purposefulproject.com. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Well, I wonder if we could start off by my audience that don't know you, perhaps you just sharing your story. Sure. I'm a, I'm a, as you can tell from my accent, maybe, I'm originally from America, and um, I moved to England about 18 years ago. I was originally a management consultant, and then in 2002, I started the charity Teach First, which uh, has a mission to address educational disadvantage and ensure that all children have access to an outstanding education. And um, I ran that for 15 years, and we grew it to become the largest graduate recruiter in the UK. Um, and I, I was really excited to be a social entrepreneur through that, and then helped found Teach for All, which is now in over 50 countries around the world with Teach for Sister programs in countries as diverse as India and Australia and Peru and uh, Germany and uh, Nigeria and elsewhere. And uh, I left about two and a half years ago after 15 years there. And I started, uh, I'm currently chairing National Citizen Service, which some of your listeners might know, which is a great um, initiative that has hundreds of thousands of young people participating. Um, And then I also started um, a VC-backed digital startup called Tiny about two years ago. And our goal there is to unlock the potential of every child, really focused on early years. And we're really focused on the youngest children, those below the age of uh, six. Oh, fascinating. Um, I actually am an angel investor myself. I just invested in a business myself that's also doing that home education, Montessori-inspired. I think there's a real gap, right? There seems to be a real need for um, more support for the younger years. How, how did you come up with this idea? What was the premise of it? Yeah, exactly. Like you said, there's a massive gap for young kids. Um, so working in education for 15 years, I've visited hundreds and hundreds of schools all over the world. And what you really quickly realize is the education gap starts very young. So if you want to ensure, as I think most people should, that every child has access to an outstanding education, um, you need to start young. You can't start when they're teenagers or even start in primary school. But yet very few countries or systems have great earlier education. And we know just so much scientific development, brain science over the last 10 years has shown, you know, so much happens in young children's brains. And you can do so much to really help them develop um, into great adolescents and great adults at that age. Um, so, so the goal of Tiny is to really help ensure every child gets a great education, to help develop the next generation of great practitioners, um, people who are working with the youngest children, and help make them great earlier as educators, and help them start small businesses in their homes where they can have small nurseries in their homes that can really have a great educational uh, philosophy to help young children. So um, perfect for the situation people find themselves in right now too, right? Where a lot of people are also having to educate their own children um, when they weren't expecting it with things like schools closed. It, it's a, it, how does it actually work? What's the, what's the nuts and bolts of the, of the model? What do you actually provide? Um, so when I left Teach First, I, I mean, I've been ruminating on this idea for a few years and it's something I've been uh, spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, what could be happening in early years? And the first thing I realized uh, is I couldn't do it myself. So I think having been a social entrepreneur for 15 years and maybe 
some of your listeners might be interested, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of thinking, you know, it's a one person show or it's something they can do themselves. I don't have a digital background. I know very little bit of, a little about digital or tech or, um, product. And so the first thing I did is I spent, um, maybe about nine months trying to find a co-founder who was a good digital, um, background. And I must've met 60 or 70 people during that time. And I just kept on trying to meet more and more people until I met my co-founder Ed Reed, who was one of the founders of Gray's, the snack business and was CTO there. And together we also found our third co-founder, uh, John, who, um, founded a digital design studio. And then our fourth co-founder, uh, Stephanie, who's come from Uber, who's um, a great customer experience background and uh, with logistics. And I think that was the first thing I realized is I needed to put the right team together in order to make this happen because I didn't have the skills myself. Um, I think the second thing, you know, was we started talking to lots and lots of child minders, talked to lots of nurseries, talked to lots of parents, really tried to understand the system and the problem out there. And I felt like from my time teacher, I had a pretty good idea of the problem and, and we learned a lot more. Um, and then the next stage was to raise some money, which which is obviously an important part of it. And from Angels, um, and then from Local Globe, who was our, our first institutional investor in Jam Jar, two great VCs. Um, and then more recently, raised a second round from Index Ventures as a as a C plus round. And and with that, it was really about starting to build a team, starting to build a product, uh, working closely with customers, really constantly iterating what works and what doesn't, and um, you know trying to get product market fit. Such a great lesson in that story for my listeners. I don't want them to miss it. And I think that one of the things we hear a lot within our community is people want to start businesses, but they need money. Of course, money is very important. But the way you've described it, you know, you find a team, talk to customers, then find money. I think that's uh, really important for people to see that process. Sometimes you can get people on board before you've got all the money. In fact, I'm sure the people that came on board in the early days also invested. That's what's happened to me. And I think a lot of people miss that step. They think, oh, I can't start because I need money. But you can talk to potential customers before you've got money. You can talk to people that might join you before you've got money. And that's what your story illustrates, I think. No, I totally agree. I think uh, obviously money is important for, for a startup to be successful. But if you don't have the right, if you're not solving the right problem, if you know you don't have the right team, money is not going to get you very far. Totally. And I, I'm sure um, you know, raising money is never easy. I don't care what anyone says. We all know it's not easy, but it's a lot easier if you've got a good team and your customers want it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. When you have the team and you can show that, you know, there's people out there willing to pay for the product you want to develop, it makes it much easier to raise money. Was it hard, I guess, moving from, I guess, I'm looking at your CV, just stepping back for a second, you know, you were at McKinsey in your early career for a few years, and then you um, started Teacher First. And, and, and of course, um, moving through, you know, from, say, a job to starting a social enterprise. Again, a lot of our listeners do talk about wanting to start social enterprises. Are there any insights, tips or history there you think is worth sharing? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I kind of ran teach first a bit more like a VC backed company than, than a charity. Um, and I've kind of enjoyed the enter, you know, working for a VC backed company in that they're very, it's very focused on growth on, you know, impact. I just, my way of wiring, I, I, I get bored. If I, I always get frustrated about very small charities that are having a great impact, but only for a few people. And whenever I see that, I always think, well, how can you do this for more people and have a bigger impact? And, you know, it, it you know, how, even though it's lovely for those people you're helping, how can you really change the system? And that's what I always want to do at Teach First. And it's often hard to do uh, for a charity. There's very few charities, I think, that grow as fast as Teach First did. Um, and it's one of the reasons I wanted this to be actually more of a VC-backed company than a charity, because I really wanted to, I thought we could actually make a bigger difference by getting something that could grow and, and get to lots of people very quick. Um, I, I do think 
you know, impact and values-based companies are in all sectors, not just charities. And I think, you know, I think our investors have been really excited about our values and the impact we're having. I think our staff have, and, you know, our customers have been. So I think there's more and more examples of companies that are really strong values and really strong mission focus, which um, it, I, I hope and I feel that's the direction the whole economy is going. And that's where people want to move much more into. It's a really interesting gap you're talking about. In fact, I think our platform falls into the same gap. You know, one side charity where there is a feeling like you only survive as long as people give you money. And then there's the other side, which is almost like the business world that's seen somewhat as, you know, profit making money and greed. But there's some something, I think, in the, in the middle, which is a sustainable, scalable business that does good, right? I, 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 I hope you're right. I think you're right. Um, that there is a wave of this type of business coming because it is I've seen a lot of social enterprises who try to raise money from VCs for example they struggle because the VC feels you know they don't want to take the money out of something that should needs that money to grow so they find it hard to get their capital out how did you get that balance right in in Teacher First for example yeah I mean it was so Teach First was a pure charity and we managed we had like a three-way funding model where um on average, about a third of our funding came from central government sources because we were providing a service to them by um, recruiting teachers. About a third of our money was kind of a fee for service from schools and other sources where, um, you know, they would normally, schools would normally pay a recruitment fee to someone and, and we would get that. And then a third would come from philanthropy. So we, we raise money from businesses and individuals and foundations and um, you know, it's a drag raising money nonstop for charities. I mean, it's a, it's a full time, you know, if, if VC, if, um, CEOs and founders of VC back companies think fundraising is a drag charities, is more difficult because you're doing it nonstop um, all the time. And often it, there's lack of alignment. Funders aren't always totally aligned on what you're trying to do. And it's, it's, uh, uh, in some ways it can be a bit messier than, than with a company when you're raising money. Mm, very interesting point. You also talk there about um, impact. I guess a lot of people have small businesses. Again, a lot of our listeners are like this, and they want to grow them into bigger businesses and impact. So, how do you measure success, for example? What's how do you gauge that? I mean, at Teach First, I, with the struggle I think a lot of charities have is you can measure success based on um, what you're doing. So it's very easy as a charity to say, great, we're successful because we're the largest recruiter in the country. We're recruiting a lot of teachers or our turnover's grown or this, that, or the other. But the truth is that's not success, you know? And at Teachers, I always try to get us to what is the end user? The end user is the child in Grimsby and, you know, in wherever, in a, in a, in a low-income community who isn't getting the education they need, who should get a better education. And are they getting a better education? And if not, we're failing. And if they are, we're succeeding. And I was always trying to get the um, data around that as a way to measure our success. So like in the communities we're in, do children from lower income backgrounds, are they getting a better education? You know, we're not. And that's success. Um, and I think it's very hard for charities to measure success. What, you know, in companies, in some ways, it's easy because you're either making money or you're not. And I think, again, what makes it more difficult is if you want to be an impact focused business like Tiny, we, we want to be profitable. We have to be profitable to be sustainable and to grow and everything. And that's important. But also if we're doing that, but we're not providing a great education for children and, you know, obviously it's if their safeguarding is not perfect and our practitioners, the, the educators aren't, you know, enjoying their life and everything, then we're, we're still failing. And it's, it's trying to get that balance right of different goals. I think that's, that's always difficult when you're creating something that isn't just about profit. So when you make that move from, um, I guess the, 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 I'm going to call it charity section, but I think uh, sector, but I guess it's, it's, it's more than that, but the, the, that, that model, I guess, to a VC-backed, uh, value-based 
company. Is, is there a big difference? Have you noticed a big difference in, in the two models or is it, is it actually similar? I mean, it's, there's more similarities, I think, than people think. I think, uh, you know, sometimes people think charities aren't well run or, or are well, you know, are different. And and I think some charities are very well run, you know, and people work very hard. And um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's not necessarily easier or harder, I think. Um, I think what I find with VC backed is there's more of a focus on growth and growing your impact. And I quite like that. I think often in the charity world, boards are very risk averse or are much more risk averse because I think often the boards don't get the advantage of success, but they have the problems of the fall. So if a charity fails, the board gets in trouble or has a problem. Well, if they succeed, the board doesn't really get much personal benefit. And I always thought, God, it would be great if, we could like make these decisions based on children in the areas we're not in because whenever I try to go to a new area, the board would always push back a bit, or even the staff would be like, Oh, we're going too fast. We're, you know, moving too fast. And I always thought, but those children in that area we're not in, if they were at this table, they'd say, please come to us now because we're getting a crappy education and we need to improve our education and we need like great teachers. Um, and unfortunately they don't get a voice. So often the, the end user, the end beneficiary doesn't get a voice in charities, which I think is sometimes a problem. Um, and uh, so in some ways, at least at this stage, I'm really enjoying the current setup where we're all aligned on how do we make Tiny as successful as possible and, and really grow to get to as many people as possible. And how do you get a, a product like Tiny to the community you're talking about? What's the marketing strategy for a business like this? So, I mean, our main customer now is the uh, child monitor. We're calling them Tiny Home Nursery Owners. Um, where there's a real shortage now and we're trying to get more of that supply into the market. Um, you know, the other side is demand because there's, uh, you know, parents looking for childcare, but the truth is there's so much demand for childcare now that actually that's less of a problem. So with the supply, what we're looking for is a lot of our people come from nursery or earlier education background themselves, about half of them. And we're able to tell them, look, rather than, you know, earn minimum wage or close to that, um, and, you know, have a difficult situation, join Tiny, you'll get fantastic professional development, fantastic training, you'll earn a good salary, you can do it from your home, it's more flexible, you know, we'll treat you like professionals, you'll be part of a fantastic cohort and community. Um, and then I think the other half of the people joining us are, a lot of them are parents, mostly moms of small children, who want to work from home while taking care of their child. And, you know, our pitch is really to them is, look, you could have a great career helping others, professional development, while taking care of your own child and, and really get great fulfillment from a, from a really good job here. And uh, yeah, we're seeing that working and we're, you know, pre COVID we were finding people all over the place through schools and through networks and stuff. Now we're doing a lot more online um, advertising, but network finding networks and um, you know, people introducing us to other people and, and finding them is, is the best way to, to get in touch. I was going to say the big part of our listening network are, are, are single mums and dads that want to be with their children um, but need to earn a living. And so um, it's it's really apt that you're here sharing this uh, this this product with our audience because it, it could support them and that's very important. I wanted to understand a little bit about your journey because, I, I, again, I'm just so blown away with what you've created and how you've managed to build an entrepreneurial career that I feel is very focused on building things that help people regardless of benefit to you. So I look back, how did you get this mindset? I mean, you I just, I, I just, so many people start a business. It took me probably um, eight companies before I even heard the word purpose. You know, I built a business to make a living. I wanted to make money. And then slowly I realized that money wasn't the key thing and I evolved. 
I feel like you went straight from McKenzie into a business that had purpose. Did you, were you grew, grew, did you grow up with parents that knew this mindset? Did you just naturally have it? You know, for my audience out there listening that can't even grasp purpose, how did this happen to you? How come at such an early stage in your career you knew this? I don't know, to be honest. I wish I had like a, a, a moment where I can say a great story. I mean, I, d- I came from a family of teachers and educators, so I always think education is important. Um, I think I've just always, you know, I, I enjoyed working at McKinsey, but there was times when we had clients and I just thought, what's the point? Like, it wasn't very exciting to help a bank just get slightly more profitable on the margins. I just found that, you know, not not quite as interesting, basically. And I think when I started teachers. It started, I visited a number of schools in London in 2002 that were just really bad. And I think there's no other way to put it. They just were not doing their core job of educating the children in those schools well. You know, those children, young people, teenagers, were not leaving the school with a good education. And I remember visiting them and thinking, this is just totally not fair. This is a massive problem. Uh, the, I, I met one head teacher who said, uh, my goal is just to keep these kids off the street and out of jail, just to give you an idea. And I just thought, that's ridiculous. Like, who would want their children go to school and it's not fair at all for these young people and they're getting a completely raw deal and I thought there's a way to solve this problem and I guess I just got excited about this as a problem that needed to be solved you know and it just started from there I think um just thinking that this was a situation that wasn't fair could be solved and needed to be solved and I think as an entrepreneur both that and with tiny I, I always start with problems like these are problems that just need to be solved and I think that's what drives me more than even purpose or money or anything. It's just solving problems. Like these are big problems that need big solutions. And, and, you know, that's a lot of fun. I think solving big problems. It's a great driver. Again, for my listeners, I hope, hope you guys pick up on this, you know, finding purpose can come from finding a problem that you want to solve. So many people don't know how to find purpose, right? But if you've got that problem and bit between your teeth, that's, so it was easy to quit McKinsey. There was no hesitation. Um, out of there and off you went. Was it was it that simple? Was it? Did you have a long conversations with your parents? And they said, you know, was was it a difficult or easy decision? Yeah, I think everyone I spoke to said I was mad and crazy, and it was the dumbest idea anyone's ever heard of. So, um, but and I did actually. And McKinsey was very very nice. They gave me like a one year sabbatical to try to get it started with the idea. I would then you know come back and and that was my original thought. And then after a year, I thought, oh my god, uh, I liked. I really enjoyed McKinsey too. But but I just thought this is so much more fun than being a management consultant. And so after a year, I just ended up doing it for good. But yeah. That's fantastic. And then just looking through, um, and, and you talked about something I think is also really important for my um, audience to li- to understand, and we can delve into it for a second, which is, you know, building a business um, and co-founders. And so um, it's, I think that the whole pe- mindset is you have to have someone to start a business with and co-found it together. But what you're saying is you had the idea and then you went out and found the person you needed to make the idea happen and brought them on as a co-founder. So that person who's your co-founder doesn't have to be their own idea to be your co-founder, but you can, you you interviewed 70 people, 60, 70 people, you said. I mean, a lot of people, again, they think they don't have technical skills. They just give up at that stage and they can't, they don't, Mm. the perseverance piece. But what do you think about co-founders? Do you think it, I mean, in your case with a technical product, are probably crucial, but in your early career, did you have co-founders? I mean, I didn't have like an official co-founder at Teach First, but, you know, there was tons of people involved at the beginning, um, mentors, uh, original staff, supporters, you know, there, you know, I can think of five or six in particular who probably should be co-founders, you know, and I think definitely a lesson is it's impossible to do anything like this on your own. Like I, I've yet to meet you know, uh, an entrepreneur who just really is a founder and does it on their own. And I think that maybe is a myth from my experience that um, no one has all the skills necessary. And I think that's maybe something I've 
really focused on in my career is, is just trying to surround myself with people who are much better than me in all the skills needed to uh, make something happen. And, you know, I think I have a really good understanding of my lack of skills in many areas and like, and the need, you know, that anything I do will not be successful if I don't find people who can, who can buttress those areas. And how do you know when you find the right person? What's the criteria? I mean, I think, um, from my experience, there definitely has to be a values link. Um, I think the biggest mistakes just to start the, the biggest mistake I've made is hiring people who have the skill set. You know, they definitely have to have the skill set and they have to, you know, want to do the job and everything. Um, and I've hired people like that before though, who I've always worried, oh, they don't really fit the values or this isn't, you know, what excites them in the right way, or they're asking questions that make me really worried about, you know, why they're joining this. And, uh, almost every time that's never worked out well, like it's always not been a good experience. And I think over my career, I've learned more and more about the importance of hiring people who really are bought into the values and the mission of what you're trying to do, you know, and see themselves as, as, like that's a core of what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, and, and just like a, someone who's has huge skills, but it's a bit of a prima donna. I think that's always a negative for an organization. Another great insight from you there. I think the, um, I would say, uh, manage purpose, not people. Mm-hmm. If, if people are brought into the purpose, they're self-motivated, generally speaking. So it's, it's really important. I think the values thing is, I think moral code is just generally also not talked about enough in business and who you do business with. I've had plenty of bad partnerships because we had different moral codes, not judging anyone out there, but you know, you've got to uh, know yourself. Uh, and when you're interviewing people have those conversations about what actually matters, right? And people don't, I think they look like you say, they look at a skill set, maybe a CV um, and, and they, they, they hire on that, but, but checking values is um, really important. Yeah. I mean, if I could say I spend like for some of my senior team, I, I do tons and tons of, call um references i I always find like that's amazing like i'm just thinking our our coo who we brought on um you know i I think i must have spoken to seven or eight people who worked with her and i had long phone conversations with all of them you know not email or anything i think that's a great use of time and um we all do these uh, the four of us together have a a coach and have done these um, behavioral tools to see where we all fit and really understand how we communicate to each other. And I think investing time in those sort of things can be really useful also. Mm, It's just um, doing the groundwork, isn't it? I think, again, I think references is one that's like, even on the investment side, I'm sure on the investment side, when you bring an investor in, you also want to get, check who they are and what other investees have experienced, right? So I think checking with the community and both sides, I do see it neglected in people when they're building businesses. They don't they don't get references. <laughs> they're moving too fast in that regard. I mean, um, you know, in, in startup land, it's all about moving fast, right, somehow. But that that those steps can save your business later. If you get the wrong person in, it's, it's a catastrophe, right? Absolutely. You never, never waste time getting another reference. That's never a bad use of time, I think. I couldn't agree more. Do you think there was a, a big break moment in in building the platform? I mean, how, if you teacher first, for example, you were know, 15 years building, building that. Do you think there was moments when you just, went, wow, was there any particular challenges where you thought this is, this is it, it's over? Um, yeah, I mean, there were definitely ups and downs in our early years. Um, we worried about, we needed to get government support to make it happen. And, and we, we worried a bit about that and, and some funding crises early on. I think um, two or three years in, we suddenly hit, you know, we had that, pro- we had that moment that, everyone always wants to hit where suddenly we were going to Oxford for instance and uh, doing a milk round event and, uh, and the room was packed and we had to get bigger rooms and everything. And, and we were just sold out for everything. And, um, and we were just growing really fast. And um, I think it was for Gordon Brown and then actually 
on the other side, Michael Cove wanted to invest more from government side and schools really wanted more. And it just felt like, um, yeah, it was a, a five-year period, I think, uh, maybe three or four years after we got started, where it just felt like that flywheel was moving really fast, which, you know, is a really intoxicating feeling, which I'm, <laughs> I, we haven't quite gotten to that moment yet at Tiny. I'm hoping we're very close, and, and it's a wonderful feeling to have. Yeah, that, that takes a lot of build-up, doesn't it? That yes, uh, credibility, yeah. um, holding it together. I want to say faking it till you make it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> There's all sorts of pieces, yeah. right? It's a lot of small change. Like my experience, like there's some big change you have to make, but also it's like a hundred small changes. Like I think it's just constantly improving things. Um, just and a hundred tiny improvements often is what something needs. I, I remember at Teach First, just lots of small changes, improvements we had to make, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a lovely feeling when you get there. Oh, it's uh, well hard work. The um, the thing I find interesting, and this is government involvement um, in in something. Sometimes to me. And many people I know who are listening, they love the idea of government supporting their business, you know, especially if they can't, it sounds like they're kind of a client for you in a way, right? They're, they're, you're servicing the need that the government can't service itself. Um, so, but it, do you think it's based when you're a charity structure, it's easier to get government support than say, for example, with, with Tiny Now as a, as a VC-backed value-based company? Does it, does it change the dynamics with, with, with organizations That's like the government? Um, I don't know. You know, in our current role, we, we, we aren't looking to get really funding from government, basically, because early years is much more of a private sector sort of space. I mean, we get some funding from government, but it's more the parent gets the money to pay for childcare, and then we get it from the parent. Um, I'm trying to think if it's a big difference. I mean, why, why I worked in um, Teach First is we were meeting a government need. Like, uh, I think uh, the Department for Education was struggling to get enough great teachers into, like, low-income schools, especially in, in some areas of the country where, you know, and I think we, we had a way to do that. And uh, so that was a core government need that I think we were able to provide uh, a solution for. So so that sort of fit. I know a lot of charities really struggle to get any money from government. And, um, you know, I think I think it just kind of worked for us because, like, the need we were providing is something that the government felt they needed to <laughs> they needed to provide. Like, it was sort of a core core problem that we were helping them solve mm. it's interesting you mentioned earlier as well kind of like the three ways you make revenue from a business um and and you know i think that's an interesting one too because a lot of people rely on one income stream i always like the linkedin model because they've got four or five different ways to to bring in income um you know mm-hmm. membership fee all the way through to corporate partners and so on D- does tiny have a model like that is if you if you kind of copied and paste a similar formula yeah it's funny we, we've uh, i mean so we're we're, we're a operating system for our child minors. So we have something called Tiny Wallet where all the money um, that they get from lots of different sources, we're able to deal with that. And we're now FCA um, approved as Tiny and um, and um, makes it much easier payment. And basically we take a percentage of the money that goes through our platform, um, which is our, our main revenue source. We've also, um, I mean, we do all the training. We do lots of support for our child minors, training and support and community and um, lots of education uh, um um, support and uh, safeguarding and insurance and registration and all sorts of things. Um, so, but in addition to that, we're also um, charging a um, induction fee, basically something for the training when to help them get registered. Um, and I mean, I think longer term, you know, the idea is can we provide more services for the community and the parents and can we help them in different ways? And, you know, I think once you figure out how you can help people, then revenue can usually follow from that. That's true. Good advice. Was uh, what was the hardest moment in business for you? Anything that jumps out? Um, I've had a lot of hard moments. Um, a lot of the hard moments I've had is um, 
is how to manage teams. And, you know, I don't think I'm a natural manager of teams. I, you know, struggle with it. Um, to me, I'm just so, I think I'm just so like mission focused. I just think, well, why is no one else just focused on this thing? And of course everyone has their own needs. Everyone like has their own career plans. Everyone, you know, acts differently. And, um, it's something like I often have to take a step back and remember, um, and, uh, um, you learn how to manage people in different ways who, who require, you know, different support. Um, I, and I think I've made some mistakes there. I, I think, you know, a couple of times, I, uh, as I mentioned before, I've hired people who are great skills, but aren't really values or mission aligned. And that's never really worked out great. That's been problematic at different moments. Um, yeah, I think probably that's been my biggest learning curve over the last 15 years is how to be a better manager and how to hire and, and support a team better. Well, you know, Steve Jobs had a similar problem. He hired a CEO that didn't work out. So, you know, even the best of us have that problem, I guess. It's, I hope I'm not as bad as him from oh, some stories. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a that's a different different podcast, I think. The um, I was interested in your own education. I mean, you're so heavily involved in education yourself. Your parents were both teachers. You mentioned right. So, what was your own education like? I mean, it was basically a normal education. I went. I, I grew up in New Jersey in the states, and I went to. Uh, I grew up in a small town. And I went to the local school and. Um, it was interesting. My school had a real mix of kids, some of whom went to university, some of whom, you know, um, dropped out. And it was, it was a very real mixed school, I'd say of lots of different backgrounds. And, uh, yeah. So it, you know, it was a, it was a fine, I wouldn't say I had an outstanding education, but it was fine. Like, and I think, you know, what was true for me and is true for many kids is you, if you come from a family of educators or a family that, you know, um, has experience in education, it doesn't matter if your school is average, like uh, average school is probably fine. You'll do okay. Um, the problem is if, if you're a child who doesn't have that family and, and community support, then you really need an outstanding school and you definitely need outstanding teachers around you. And um, that's something from Teach First is how, how do we ensure those children get the best teachers because they need them more than anyone. Mm. Well, I've got a three-year-old and so I, uh, I, I'm trying to be a good father and part of that is being a good teacher, right? I mean, it's a, uh, it's a, got to learn to be a teacher yourself and communicate but you, you've got three kids i mean what is it what's their education been like do you think do you think i have an issue a little bit with education in the uk and and the way it kind of formats people i feel in some respects it teaches people not to be entrepreneurs <laughs> it doesn't put fear in them around risk but what's your view it doesn't have to be the same as mine i'm just interested yeah i i don't you know i have lots of thoughts about british education i mean i think in some ways I mean, my children, I'll, I'll go to the local primary school and uh, it's, a, it's a really, I love our local primary school. It's a very diverse school and uh, I think it's a great head teacher. I'll give a shout out to Highgate Primary School, which is, um, you know, yeah, I just think it's a great, great caring teachers, great head and, and it's just nice, diverse, caring community there. Um, you know, I think, I think there's some things, I'll start with the good parts about British education is it's a lot better than I think it was 20 years ago. And often everyone focuses on the negative and in some ways, having a strong regulator like Ofsted, you know, a focus on GCSEs um, gives a higher floor than used to. And when we started, a lot of children dropped below the floor, like, and, and there was nothing holding them up. And you see that in America, too. A lot of schools don't meet minimum standards and no one really cares. And, you know, and I think it's I think more kids are getting an adequate education now than 10 or 20 years ago. So that, that, you know, and I think to start with that, that's a success because I've met lots of these kids and it's very hard for children now to go through education and not at least get a, 
a good education, let's say. Um, now that said, I do worry sometimes there's so much specialization, you know, it's much more specialized. And when you see like 14 year olds having to specialize on just a few topics or so test focused, like I see, you know, 14 year olds just already were 13 year olds worrying about GCSEs and, and forgetting about like the wider subject or, you know, when they're studying English, just spending time memorizing poems and maybe not learning how you can enjoy literature in different ways. You know, there's certain things definitely in education that I, I don't think, you know, I think can be improved. Um, but it's, a, I think it's, it's a difficult balance. You know, I, I'm, I'm always like much more in a moderate middle ground on this because I think if you don't have exams, then it's often the poorest kids who um, get most disadvantaged because there's no way for them to improve and there's no way to see if their schools are doing well or not, you know? Um, so, you know, if you don't have exams, you need to find some other way to help kids from the poorest background and to ensure that their success can be measured. And, uh, um, you know, so I don't think there's any, I've seen, I've gone to, I've been to schools all over the world. I, I don't think I've seen a perfect system. You know, there's no perfect system anywhere in the world. And I think in the end, it all gets down to great teachers, great leadership, um, you know, great people in the system who just care about the kids and, every system has its pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses yeah i I, um i left school at 15 but um looking back at my school years i enjoyed subjects because of teachers not Mm. and how they presented the subject like i absolutely loved history because of my history teacher i am actually dyslexic but i enjoyed english because my english teacher was quite um quite quite inspirational and and so it's interesting, isn't it? I think you know it's uh, the, the teachers are so important to the process, and then unfortunately they also feel like they're the most neglected in the system. Yeah, no, no. There's a saying. No, it's true. No school can be better than the teachers in the school. Mm. I've never seen a school that's you know has bad teachers, and mm. it's a great school. Um, and so I don't think there's anything more important than than the quality teachers, which is why it's it's what we focus on. And the same in early years. I mean, it's probably why I've I've focused my career on that topic because I think. I mean, in some ways, British education is really easy. If you want it to be outstanding, however many schools there are, 20,000 schools, find 20,000 outstanding individuals to be head teachers of these schools and give them, you know, as much autonomy as you can and let them go lead it. 20,000 wonderful educational entrepreneurs. Mm. You know, that's one way. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, it's not easy, but, you know, um, it's also wouldn't be rocket science if if people just focused on that problem. Mm, Interesting. I mean, there is talk sometimes within the education system about, you know, for example, in England, getting rid of the private school system um, because it creates a divide between the rich and poor and the, the money goes into the private schools and therefore the, 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 the non-private schools, I get confused, I've lived all over the world, get confused, private, public. But the point is that the schools um, that aren't, don't have the wealthy families in them, therefore get under, underfunded and, and don't have the, the computers they need, for example, or the, the things they need to, you know, support the teachers, and the teachers end up buying the paper and the pencils. For you know, we all know that, those stories, which is absolutely ridiculous for their students. So, do you think that's a good idea or not? I mean, I'm not a fan of private schools, and I certainly think, you know, uh, I, I I question people I sometimes meet uh, in my social circles who send their kids to private schools, why, why they do it. When I, and I, I say, look, I know the school in your area. It's a great school. Why would you, you know, I, I, I'm some, sometimes I don't understand it. I mean, you know, I, I think comprehensive schools often, you know, are definitely the best if, if you can get them all working really well. I, I often give an example um, about grammar schools. You know, there's Kent is one of the few areas of England that still has grammar schools. Um, a few miles west of Kent in East London, there are no grammar schools. In East London, there are some of the best low-income schools in the entire world. I can name you 10 schools in East London. 
um, that have most of their kids from low-income backgrounds that are among the best schools in the world. They're just truly outstanding schools. And many of your listeners won't even realize just how many truly outstanding schools there are in low-income areas in East London, like globally outstanding. You go 20 miles to the east, you're in Kent, you see very few, if any, that I know of, outstanding schools in low-income areas. And the reason is because grammar schools, I think, change the market and take out some of the kids. And, you know, the kids who aren't going to grammar schools often feel like losers. And, you know, those schools struggle to get the best teachers and all these things. Um, And I think that's the biggest difference there. You know, and I think, um, you know, separating children in that sort of age is not a good idea. I think you need to build great comprehensive schools and ensure every child there gets a great education. And it's not impossible to do. And that's what's best for the entire system. It can't, the education can't be a a win-lose zero sum game. You know, you can't have a great education for some and not others. That just doesn't work in a modern society. And I, and I, um, as as someone, you know, about um, sounding arrogant, I could, I could send my son to a private school. I could afford to do it. But I, I actually went to a public school and I, I valued that education from a human perspective. Because I, 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 my, my family were wealthy. They lost all their money, um, but they were very wealthy when I was at a public school. And in a way that I, I mixed with all sorts of different people from different walks of life. In a way, it made me appreciate what I did have, but equally also um, respect and understand other people's ways of living. And I think in private schools, sometimes it becomes a bit of a you know, bubble. Um, and not, not to judge, because I also know a lot of good people in private schools, but it is definitely a problem as a parent because you feel like somehow um, you need to give your child the best access to the best teachers and if the best teachers are going to private schools. It kind of drains from the schools that would have those teachers. Otherwise, it's a real complex problem that does need thinking about, I think. Yeah, I would just say there's tons of great comprehensive schools now in England, you know, some really good ones. And uh, I was talking to someone, <laughs> I won't name who, who's a, an expert on mental health and stress and everything, gave a talk on it. And then afterwards, he mentioned his, uh, I think, eight-year-old who was getting very stressed. We were trying to mention something else. His eight-year-old was getting stressed because of taking some exams to go to private school. And I didn't even understand what he was talking about because I knew... I knew this, I knew the little um, primary school his child was going to. And I said, Oh, I know that school. That's a fantastic school. Um, you know, I know the teachers are, why, why, why would you even want your child not to continue going there? And he just looked at me like, well, of course I want my child to go to a private school. And, but there was no reasoning behind it. And right. I, I knew the school and I just thought, you know, no private, private school is not going to be any better than the school they're going to. Why are you putting a, a small child through this stress for no reason, as well as having to spend, you know, whatever, hundred thousands of pounds or whatever for something you can get for free. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's I guess it's a very delicate subject for people that listen and have, have either gone to a private school or putting their kids in a private school. No, no offense to, to, to them, but I think sometimes it is also, um, and this will offend them almost like a trophy, isn't it? Like I know someone who sent their child to Eton and it was, they said it like it was their car, you know, or their, where they live, you know, like a trophy. My son's at Eton as opposed to like, well, are they enjoying it? What are they doing there? You know, none of that came up. It was just that, oh, my son's at Eton. You know, it, it, it's a, I guess it's um, a prestigious thing, isn't it, sometimes as well. And that, that's what I don't like about it. And, I, and I'm worried about the education system. But it's interesting when you see, I think, it, is it Sweden that, that did ban private schools? I think it's Sweden. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I know most. I know. I remember looking at one point. I mean, England, uh, the UK has one of the highest percentages of children in private schools. I think the highest in Europe, from, from what I remember. You know, a lot of schools hardly send anyone, unless you know very religious kids or something. I think. I think. Um, look at some countries. It was basically only for very religious children, um, and some have banned private schools. I mean, it is some way a British thing, and I, I, I don't. I probably don't totally understand the culture beyond it. But um, um, yeah, I mean, no, I don't. I think. I don't want to 
talk down anyone who sends their kids to private schools. I mean, some do it for very good reasons, and there's all sorts of good reasons. And you know, but I think generally a successful education system is one where you can send your child to any school on any street corner, and they'll get a great education. And that's that's what we should work towards. It's, it's nice to have an upbeat view on education i must admit personally i'm quite down on it quite often so it's actually nice to have like you say a balanced view on actually in particular in the uk um, our podcast is listened to by people all over the world but i think the uk education system on the um uh, if, if, if it's, it's pretty good you know non-private schools are pretty good and i think i think that's something to be proud of actually um i, I just wanted to um step back and, and say you know um it, it's um, uh, well deserved your obe um, that must have been a, a, a very special moment for you. Yeah, I know that was exciting. Um, you know, and uh, having been born in America and now be a, a immigrant, naturalized British citizen, you know, it was great, obviously, to go to Palace with my mom and my wife and my kids and uh, Prince Charles uh, giving it to me. And it's uh, very funny. Um, and yeah, the only time I, I really use it is when my children tell me I'm pronouncing a word wrong because they make fun of my American accent. And I said, look, I'm an officer of the British Empire. Who are you telling I'm pronouncing the word wrong? You know? But my kids don't seem to listen to me when I say that for some reason. Well, that's the beauty of kids, right? They, uh, they, they don't have to listen to you. You were also Ernest Young Social Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, I mean, that, that's qu- also quite a, an exciting thing to be, be recognized in that space. And did these things help you in developing the business or, or is it, it didn't really matter? It's just... Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess where they help is attracting talent, probably. You know, I'm guessing is when I meet with like people like Ed or John or Stephanie, my, uh, my co-founders, um, you know, I'm guessing if they see these things, they think, okay, this is someone, you know, more serious who can make things happen. I mean, I think that's probably where it's more, most useful is kind of to attract, you know, really other, you know, great people to the cause. It's interesting having dual citizenship. My wife also has dual citizenship. She's Hong Kong. She's got three, New Zealand and English. Um, she had a Chinese mother from New Zealand and an English father. And so it's always interesting when I say to her, you know, where do you see yourself from? And she says, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no, such, there's no location sometimes for home. You know, and so what, what's your take on that? You know, when, when you're asked, where, where are you from? I mean, you, you still sound American with an English twang to you in your voice, but what, where's, where, how do you yeah. see home now? I mean, I've lived in, I love London. I really do. And I've lived here almost 20 years and my family, my wife and children, you know, my wife's British and, uh, but I'm always from New Jersey. I mean, I think it's where you were a child. Like what's the test when, you know, I think England played American football and of course I rooted for America. I still like Mm. NFL. I was still, uh, you know, in tears when I watched the inauguration of Biden yesterday and, you know, heard Lady Gaga sing the, the, the national anthem and all that, you know? So I think, um, I think part of me will you know, always be American where I was born, but I, I love London. I love living in Britain. I, I also cried, so I don't think it's the Americans' <laughs> right to be the only ones that find that stuff incredibly moving. And so, um, but I hear you. I know what you mean. Do you support a British football team? Well, uh, in America, I'm a big NFL. I like the Jets, who are like the worst team ever. And I've got my son. My son's a Chelsea fan for some reason. So he's forced me to like Chelsea. So I... I I don't really support any team, but I guess I support the Chelsea because because of him, just to uh, keep it in the family. Fair. Well, look, um, I really appreciate you giving time to us today and sharing your story. It's it's amazing. Um, and I want all my listeners to go and check you out, especially those that perhaps could find what you're doing useful to their lives. And um, I just wanted to ask you one last question, really. If you went back to your younger self and gave some advice, what would it be? Oh, God. Um 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, it's a good question. Um, and I was thinking partly, like if you give advice to your younger self, part of it, you need to almost go through problems to learn from them. Like I was thinking, let's say you can go to your younger self and you could say, you know, don't do A, B, and C, and then you don't do it. I almost wonder, would I have been able to do what I did because I would have grown, you know, in the way I did. And sometimes I just think the experiences themselves are as valuable as the lessons you learn from them, which is maybe not a good answer to your question. I mean, because I was thinking, well, in some ways don't take things quite as seriously as I often did. But if I hadn't taken things as seriously, I wouldn't have learned lessons. I wouldn't have probably done things I had done, you know, or, um, you know, like uh, I said, always really, you know, learn how to, how to manage better, how to work better with people in different ways. And, uh, but if I, you know, probably some of my difficulty in the early days got teach first through some difficult moments that, you know, if I had learned those lessons too young. So it's hard to know, isn't it? Because, um, um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the main lesson, I guess I would have to say is, is just enjoy, enjoy as much as you can. Right. Because I guess as, as you start getting older, you realize, um, that you have to enjoy what you're doing. And, uh, you know, if you spend too much time of your life working on things you don't really enjoy, it's, uh, it's a bit of a wasted life. Mm, I, I totally agree and I like the thought pattern too is a debate isn't it really that whole um, changing history and the danger it can bring I mean that's one of the reasons we call this podcast a good luck club podcast because I think bad luck can be good luck in disguise and good luck can be bad luck in disguise and uh, it's all about the journey isn't it enjoy the journey as you said yeah. quite rightly look I want to thank you again for taking the time I'm uh, grateful appreciate what you're doing for the human race and uh, helping uh, young people in particular get the education they deserve so thanks so much for that and uh, look forward to having you back on the podcast in the future and uh, yeah thanks for sharing your story great thank you and really enjoyed it thank you for listening to the purposeful project podcast today if you got any value from this podcast then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback and if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real life successful entrepreneur then feel free to share and of course go and visit purposefulproject.com and join our mailing list at any point thanks again for listening